I learned a new word this week. I actually had to click on Google, you know, to have them pronounce it for me so that I would say it correctly. Anyone know the word funambulist? An A to that man sitting there. Did you hear what Rick said? It's a tightrope walker. Funambulous. Have you done it, Rick? <laughs> well done. Oh, my goodness. I, the reason I, I, I discovered that word is I was, I was reading again a story that I love by Tony Campolo, and I, I want to share it with you. He tells the story of a tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. Name might be familiar. 1890s. He became the first person to walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Now, this rope was made entirely of hemp, reed not as strong as our ropes today, two inches in diameter, and it was 1,300 feet long. The story goes that before 25,000 screaming people who had gathered on both sides of the falls, he inched his way from the Canadian side to the U.S. side. And when he got there, the crowd was just so excited. They were shouting his name, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. And finally, he, he raised his arms, quieted the crowd, how's this for an ego trip, and shouts to them, I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? The crowd shouted back, we believe. We believe, we believe. And again, he quieted the crowd, shouted again, I'm going back across the tightrope this time. I'm going to carry someone on my back. Do you believe I can do it? The crowd shouting, blonde and blonde and blonde, and we believe. He quieted them one more time and then said, which one of you will be that person? And the story goes that the crowd went deathly silent. Nothing from the people. Finally, from the crowd, stepped one man. He climbed on the blonde and shoulders and Blondin inched his way back across the tightrope to the Canadian side of the falls. True story. You can Google this, and you'll see pictures of Blondin and the guy on his back. Now, Campolo loves to tell the story. He's right, because it is such a powerful illustration of true faith. The point is clear, right? 25,000 people standing there that day, chanting, shouting, we believe, we believe. But who among them really did believe? The one, the one individual who climbed onto his back. So I, I did a little reading because I'd, I'd read the story before and I thought, who, who is this guy? He was quite the entertainer. He crossed Niagara Falls, they, they estimate, 300 times in his life. He performed in Europe, in China, Japan, Australia. And it's estimated by the end of his career, he had walked more than 10,000 miles on his rope. Now, I also discovered that he had a manager by the name of Harry Colcord. Now, that would probably be expected, yes, because he had become very famous, won and traveled all over the world. So he had a manager. Back to the story of the crossing of Niagara Falls with a man on his back. Who do you suppose the man was on his back? Harry Colcord, the manager. 
Okay. So, let me ask you. Why do you think the manager got on his back? Because he knew he'd make it. I think so. Initially, I thought, well, because he knew he'd get fired. And then I thought, well, that's stupid. Let's see, fired and alive, not fired and dead. I think you're right, Doug. Because he knew him. There is, there is no one in that crowd that knew Charles Blondin like his manager. In terms of, of his ability, he knew how good Blondin was. They undoubtedly had spent countless hours together. He had watched Blondin practice and practice. And so I think it's very reasonable to assume that he climbed onto his back that day because he knew how good this man was and he trusted him. Now, interesting article from the Smithsonian. Here were the words of Blondin to his manager as he crawled onto his back and they stepped onto the rope. He said to him, look up, Harry, look up. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me. Mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we will both go to our death. Be one with me. That story has made me think so often this week about this new series that we're starting this morning. I've given it the title, It's All About Faith. That is life, is it not? For the people of God, it's all about faith. From start to finish, it's all about our faith in God. Now, here's the thing that's been bouncing around in my head for a few weeks. You know, there's plenty of room for that to happen. As the series began to take shape, I, I thought, you know, we know as people of God, we, we know about faith, right? We, we are the people of the faith, capital F, that is the orthodox body or content of Christian teaching. We are a people of the faith. We, we hold to that. We also understand that we are a people who, who live by faith. There's the capital F faith, that is what we believe, There is the small f faith, that is what we exhibit as we live our lives. Life with God is a life of faith. Yes? At least least we, we know that it should be a life of faith. And I think for many of us, self included, we have an intellectual understanding that life with God is, is a life of faith, but practically speaking, what does that mean? What does it mean that I live my life by faith? What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that sound like to those who know us casually, to those who know us well, What does it mean to them that we live our lives 
by faith on a daily basis. Our text for this series is going to be Hebrews chapter 11. You've probably read that chapter at some point in your Christian life, sometimes referred to as the, the Hall of Faith chapter in the Bible, because it's a recounting of several Old Testament characters and their life in relationship with God. And the writer of Hebrews, we don't really know for sure who it is. Most commentators tend to think it was probably Apollos, close associate of Paul. The writer uses the words throughout the entire letter, by faith, again and again. And in chapter 11, you will see it time and time again. I hope you spend some time reading through the chapter as we spend our summer Sundays kind of plowing through it and learning from it. You will read that word faith again and again. By faith, Abraham did this or that. By faith, Noah. By faith, Moses. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Joseph. By faith, the people of Israel. Faith is what chapter 11 is all about. And the letter of Hebrews as a whole has as its theme the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as both the revealer of God and as the mediator of God's grace. Jesus shows us who God is and Jesus communicates and accomplishes for us the grace of God. And the writer of the letter goes to, to great lengths, making the case for Jesus being superior to, to the prophets in the Old Testament. They were the mouthpiece of God. They were the voice of God. He, he, he makes the case that Jesus is superior to the angels who, who sometimes you know, brought the, the, the presence or the message of God into the lives of people. Superior to Moses the giver of the law, and superior to Aaron, who was the one who presided over the priestly system in the Old Testament. The way of of salvation. The letter of Hebrews is all about Jesus being superior to everything that the people have known regarding faith in God up to that point. Sometimes it's referred to as the book of better things. Uh, The two words in in Greek that we use for better and superior, uh, those appear countless times throughout the entire letter of, of Hebrews. So to get us started this morning, just kind of by way of introduction, I want to I want to put up a couple of verses that serve as bookends, if you will, to chapter 11. We're not going to plow through the entire letter of Hebrews. But I would encourage you to do that reading on your own. And, and I think you'll, you'll come to, I hope you come to the conclusion that, that I'm really finding myself grabbing onto, and that is that, that chapter 11 and our understanding of faith as it's lived out in that chapter, seen through the lens of who Jesus is, is really what... Hebrews is all about in terms of an encouragement and an exhortation to the people of God. This is how those who have faith in God will live their lives. Faith, by the way, 
in a hard and troubled world. Do we live in one of those? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I just think it's so appropriate for us to, to ask those questions. What does faith look like? What's it look like for me as an individual? What does it look like for us as a people? How does that get lived out? So, we're going to put up some bookend verses around Hebrews 11 this morning. We'll talk about each one of those for a few minutes. And, and then at the very end of our time together, we're going to put up the text from chapter 1 that I think is, is the key to really understanding the book of Hebrews. And I think becomes the lens through which we read all of Hebrews, including chapter 11. So the writer begins the chapter, chapter 11, with the definition of faith. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then he points out that it was this faith that the ancients were were, were commended for. That is, those who lived in the Old Testament, probably some of the ancients that he lists in the chapter and others that he doesn't. It's a reference to many of God's people. And he wants the readers of the letter to understand that the ancients were commended by God for being sure of what they hoped for in God and certain of what they couldn't see. To be commended by God was to be approved by God, to be blessed by God. And so it was their faith, those in the Old Testament, it was their faith in God that gained them God's approval and blessing. And then a few verses later, he writes these words. Let's, let's look at Hebrews 11.6. Kenny, thanks, Karen. The writer says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's a pretty black and white statement. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. One more time, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Have you got it? You've heard that, right? Probably a familiar verse. Okay, let's... uh, Let's talk together about this question. What does this verse teach us about the character of God? What does this verse teach us about the character of God? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently or earnestly seek after him. What is that teaching us about the character of God? Talk with your neighbor about that for a couple of minutes. That verse is, is Hebrews 11.6. So if you, want to, uh, if you want to look it up, if you don't remember exactly what it said, feel free to look it up. Okay, we ready? Need more time? We good? For starters, right? Okay. Who wants to start us off? What, 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 is, what does this verse teach us? about the character of God. He's in control, okay? What else? There was a lot of conversation going on. Come on, just shout it out. He's good because he's a rewarder. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. We must believe that he exists, so he is. Yeah. It, uh, it, it does come down to faith. 
There are good reasons to believe. Uh, it's, it's a reasonable faith, as others have written, but it's, it's faith. God is pleasable. All right. Good statement. Good statement. Yeah. And, and, and if I could ask a question of any of us, not just you, Zach, why did Jesus have such faith in his father? Why did the manager get on Blondin's back? Yeah. So there's something to be learned in the model of Jesus in this. Oh, yes. Relational God. That's powerful. Yeah. That really matters. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Character is pure. And, and that, Deb, I, I love the fact that you said that because I think that that's kind of where faith drives us to. God values faith. He's relational. He welcomes those who earnestly seek him. That's an interesting one to me, the who earnestly seek him. I think God, can I say it this way? God wants to be found. But he wants to be found by those who are more serious than just channel surfing the TV. Is that okay to say that? There is an earnestness that, that God recognizes from an earnest heart. The, uh, the Greek word for, for faith is the same word that is used for trust. And it's very often the same word that is used for believe in the Greek. What do you think of when you think of trust? Is it different in your mind than faith? Can be. Yes, yes. And, and sometimes belief, at least in my thinking, has a little bit more to do with, with the facts. Sort of, well, I, you know, I, I, I subscribe to a set of statements. Um, orthodoxy, if you will. Orthodox belief. Good, good connections. So... Those words, faith, believe, trust, they're, they're, they're often interchangeable in the way that the writers of the New Testament use those words in the original language. So we could say without trust, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But without trust, it is impossible to please God because, because anyone who comes to him must Trust that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek after him. That stretches us a little bit there. Uh, Or without believing, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek after him. I think they they all have an element of truth that, that, that helps us to understand this relationship that God is calling us to. The writer of Hebrews is saying that in order to have a relationship with God, a person must believe that God exists. A person must trust that God exists and also trust and believe that that God is a God who rewards those who earnestly seek Him. I think the, the interplay of those words is important because 
as I said a moment ago, we sometimes tend to think of belief as something I, I accept the facts. Faith is indeed believing, but, but it is believing to the point of, of trusting so that out of trusting comes a giving into the object of my trust so that life is different. Does that make sense? That's what the scripture is always driving at. Trusting to the point of surrender. Which just takes us back to the whole point of salvation. The whole reason for Jesus coming, we, need to, we needed to be delivered from ourselves. We didn't have in us what was required to have relationship with God. It's okay, Caleb. It's okay. And so, I, this is what we'll, we'll see, I think, as we look into the lives of those who are recorded in the chapter. They, they believed God. They trusted God. And as a result, they, they obeyed God. They surrendered to God. And, and guess what? The experience that they had of that truth and the writer promises that they would then receive the rewards of those who earnestly sought after God. And, and he uses them as examples over and over. So, so let me ask you this. Why do you think trust, faith, is so important to God? Doug, what do you think? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and does the process not come from the heart? You know? In terms of the you know the, the emotional response to Yeah, yeah, yeah. So trustworthiness is God's character. And so when I think in terms of why trust is important to God, I think it's because it speaks to our confidence in His character. God is trustworthy. He keeps His word. He keeps His promises. He follows through on everything that He says He will do. So if we don't trust, we're doubting His character. And to doubt his character is an offense to God because he is trustworthy. You know, you can trust me and at some point I will let you down because I am not trustworthy in the sense that our God is trustworthy. It's that pure character you mentioned, Deb. God is Trustworthy. Those who earnestly seek Him, not casually or occasionally, they are the ones who will be met by God and will be rewarded for their pursuit of Him. And can I just say, I think that probably the, the number one reward is the certainty of who He is and His presence in their lives. In my mind, it's always sort of been like the subjective, subjectivity 
of God's existence becomes objective in my life when I put my trust in Him, if that makes sense. The certainty of who He is and His presence in our lives is a great reward from God for our putting our trust, our belief, our faith in Him. We get to experience the reality and the wonder and the beauty of God as only those who put their faith and their trust in Him can do that. So that's the one bookend that those who come to God must believe, must trust, must have faith that He exists and that He will reward their earnest pursuit of Him. That's the bookmark that begins the chapter on all these Old Testament saints and their faith. And then there is a, a, a bookend at, at the end of the chapter. Can we put that one up, Karen? These were all commended for their faith. These, he's talking about the folks that you'll read about, because you're going to read the chapter, right? Probably every day. One short chapter every day. You'll just become buddies with all those folks in that chapter. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Anybody want to take a guess as to what the something better for us might be? In Jesus, eternal life through the salvation that Jesus provides. We've not seen it yet, but we'll see as we go through the chapter the faith of those as they trusted in the character of God. And, and quite frankly, I think the writer of Hebrews here is, is throwing down the gauntlet for those believers that are receiving this letter. He's writing to his readers, and basically he's saying this. All these folks in our history, they trusted God, and they didn't even have Jesus. What's your excuse? There's the gauntlet. I think he's throwing it down to them, and I think he's throwing it down to us. All these folks trusted God. They put their faith in God. They believed in God. And they didn't even have the sure revelation of who God is in Jesus. God in the flesh. The truly unknowable one came to us in a form that we could relate to. Jesus. He became one of us. God became one of us, the God-man. That's why the book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus often as, as the one who was just like us, as one who learned obedience, submission in the flesh through suffering, as one who was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet he didn't sin. And because of who Jesus was in the flesh, he became for us a sin offering once for all. And as a result of his death and resurrection, we can come come boldly and with confidence to God. 
That's worthy of a Yahoo. That's really what Hebrews is all about, is to, to zero in on Jesus and to say, look at what we have because of who he was and is. The Old Testament folks, they didn't have that, and yet they believed. How much more so those of us who live post-Jesus. The revelation of Jesus, the revelation of God in a way that he had never been seen or experienced. The writer of Hebrews wants those who claim to love God to love him faithfully, without doubt. He wants us, too, to love God faithfully, without doubt, because we have the revelation of God like no one has ever had it. In Jesus, God in the flesh. Mystery? Oh my goodness, yes. Truth? Yes. Assurance of our faith that we can have confidence in in who God is? Absolutely. That's why we need to to learn and be stretched uh, by this chapter. So, let's stand at the very end this morning. Just kind of mix things up. And uh, read what I think are probably the most important words in Hebrews from chapter 1. This is the writer's description, inspired by the Spirit of God, of Jesus. Together. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And all of God's people said, Amen. Can you imagine? The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Those in the Old Testament, we are told, longed to see the day of the Messiah. And quite frankly, I'm not even sure that those in the Old Testament really clearly understood who the Messiah was going to be in the spiritual sense that we understand Jesus to be. The incarnate word of God in our midst. If you want to know the character of God, you look at Jesus. You want to know the heart of God, you look at Jesus. You want to be someone who follows hard after God, look at Jesus and allow his life to begin to shape your life through the presence of God's Spirit who indwells those who believe. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, as we close. (laughs) Like, this will be a surprise to you. This is not easy. There's this collision that happens every day in our lives. It's called the sinful human flesh and the heart of God. And they collide in our lives every day 
around how to live out surrender to Jesus. And yet, I'm just going to couch myself on those words, and I hope you will too, that there is great reward for those who diligently seek him. Those who diligently seek after Jesus to live like Jesus, to sacrifice and surrender like Jesus so that God may be known through their lives. Great reward. Amen.